0: Welcome to Just Clarity, a periodic podcast about digital. Just Clarity is produced by the team at Digital Clarity Group. We help leaders transform the experience they deliver to customers, prospects, and their employees through the effective selection, integration, and adoption of customer experience management technology. Learn more at digitalclaritygroup.com. All right, welcome back to the Just Clarity podcast. I am joined by Tim Walters, co-founder and principal analyst at Digital Clarity Group. And my name is Jake Damari. I'm the director of marketing. So for this episode of Just Clarity, we are going to talk about the GDPR again, Tim. The last time we got together, we shared or you shared the five myths associated with the GDPR. A lot of great information there, folks. You can go up onto our website and, uh, and find that in the podcast section. What we're going to talk about today, though, is since this uh, the last time we spoke, Tim, you've had the opportunity to go into some businesses and uh, conduct a couple of workshops where you talk specifically about how GDPR may impact those organizations that, that brought you in. And so I'm interested uh, to learn what is it that you're, that you're learning or hearing um, now that you're out there in the field?
1: Yeah, I, w- I would say that uh, it's the out in the field part that's more um, interesting right now or, or maybe more um, worthy of discussion. Uh, the workshops are, are often um, kind of, I, I almost want to say, uh, entertaining to watch uh, because people typically go through three or four stages uh, in the course of the first couple of hours as they come to terms with the GDPR from uh, kind of laughing and thinking uh that the uh, bureaucrats have imposed another outrageous uh, set of restrictions on them to beginning to wonder how they're possibly going to be able to comply with the with the regulation to a kind of shock and awe state when they realize just how much um, it requests or demands, rather, of organizations and, and how they're possibly going to be, be able to do that before it becomes enforceable uh, in May of 2018. And so the... Other aspect of this is what's going on with people who I'm um, talking to who aren't, who aren't doing workshops, uh, who don't think for one reason or another that they need to be worried about the GDPR, at least not right now. Uh, and, and so I you know, have um, collected uh, three or four kind of top excuses that I keep hearing over and over again from people when I ask them what it is that they're doing at this point. Uh, and they basically tell me they're doing nothing.
0: Wow, that seems like a bad idea.
1: Very bad idea. So the first, the, the the first of those excuses, and I think perhaps the most prominent one, and it's almost understandable, um, is that they say there's plenty of time to worry about it. That is, we you know we've got a lot of things to do. We have to prioritize, and the GDPR is so far away that um, we've got time to to put it on the back burner for now, uh, and that's. Accurate in the sense that compliance is demanded uh, only as of May 25th, 2018. And that's, you know, that's a while from now. However, when you think about it, that's, uh, well, let's see, as of October 1st, uh, that is, as of tomorrow, um, May 25th, 2018 is about 420 working days away. Uh, That puts a different kind of perspective on it and And I think and, and I'm not the only one who thinks that even for a, a mid-sized firm that, that is not going to be impacted as fully as a, a multinational obviously uh, with uh, thousands and or millions of of consumer touch points, four hundred and twenty working days is a is a very short period of time to prepare and And here's I think a good way of looking at it. consider a single project that that the listeners might be um, familiar with, like selecting and implementing a new web content management solution for your websites. So how long does that typically take, right? We would say, you know, we do a lot of consulting around helping people select and implement uh, WCM. And very, very roughly speaking, it depends upon many factors, of course, but Uh, As a rule of thumb, say roughly 18 months. Uh, If you've really got your ducks in a row, as they say, about six months for the selection process. That is including understanding what your true requirements are, filtering that down to what we call your focal needs. That is your highest priority needs that are really going to determine which um, solution you you should select. Going through the vendor selection process and then about a year to have the service provider partner um, implement and build out the solution that could begin producing business value. Right? Does that seem reasonable to you?
0: Yeah, that seems pretty accurate to me. I know I've the the better part of my career, I spent a lot of time doing exactly that kind of work. And
1: eighteen months is is a, is is an accurate timeline. Exactly. So so now, as of October, you've got about nineteen months before the GDPR is enforced uh, in in two thousand eighteen, and you have to realize that. In all likelihood, most organizations are going to be facing two or three at least distinct technology selections and implementations in order to be in a position to be compliant. So, for example, you have to create a system. I doubt that most organizations have this now. You have to create a system for storing and retrieving granular responses to your request for consent to collect personal data. So when you ask someone, may I collect this and that data for the purposes of doing A, B, and C, you have to store that request and their response, obviously, so that you can prove that they provided, that they that they gave their consent.
0: So this is like... Preference Center 2.0.
1: Yes. <laughs> so it, But it also has to be granular. So they can say, I will give you my consent for the purpose A, but not B and C, or A and C and not B. So that all has to be stored. Uh, it has to be retrievable so that you can prove, uh, prove when requested and so forth. You also need to create a system that can basically scour all of your databases and data storage facilities and give an accurate and utterly complete response to the question from an individual, do you have any of my personal data? And that, on the one hand, might seem easy to some people because they'll say, well, we have a kind of master customer um, database that powers the personalization on our website. So we'll look in there and see if we have any personal data for that person. That's probably a good place to look. But you might have personal data about that individual in many other um, systems throughout the organization as well, let alone throughout your global organization. You may have it in servers or databases that haven't even been active for months or years. You may have it in backup storage. You may have it on personal computers of employees who have copied it to thumb drives. You may have shared it with partners, and you're now responsible for identifying that. So how are you going to be able to give that accurate response?
0: You, you know what just made me realize, Tim, is that this be, almost becomes like the regulatory hammer that allows marketers to push through the – or customer experience professionals to push through the – Three hundred and sixty-degree customer data initiative that that never gets approved or never happens due to the you know the overwhelming cost of getting that done.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I, it, it might encourage firms; it ought to encourage firms, in fact, to um, be much more thoughtful and even strategic about what kind of personal data they need and what kind, frankly, they don't need because the overhead uh, and the expense. Uh, and the hassle, frankly, of of collecting and, and using personal data is going to increase. So you, you want to be very careful about knowing what kind of value you're going to get out of it uh, so that you can make a, a reasoned judgment that the value that you can uh, receive from it um, compensates for the hoops that you have to jump through in order to uh, collect it and store it and treat it with the responsibility that the GDPR demands. Um, in addition to that, you're going to have to create... Um, A system for identifying all of that data, once you've answered that question, for extracting it, uh, if requested, and that means destroying any traces of it in your systems, and again in your partner's systems and so forth, for packaging it into what is called an easily machine-readable format. Someone suggested to me, well, this would just be XML, but I don't think that the data protection authorities are going to agree that XML is easily readable it might be easily machine-readable, but it also has to be comprehensible <laughs> to the individuals to, who have requested that data.
0: I'd say that's a step in the wrong direction.
1: Yeah, I think that's the third or fourth major system that you might have to design, acquire the um, uh, components of, and implement between now and May uh, 2018.
0: And we're only in the custom pieces.
1: Yeah, exactly. And there's an entire another part in the regulation about data breach Identification and notification. So, you know, we just saw in the case of Yahoo, who who would have us believe that uh, they were unaware of uh, a data breach that resulted in the loss of five hundred million uh, personal data about five hundred million individuals for over two years. That's um, not um, <laughs> that's not acceptable under the GDPR. So, if you don't have it already, and frankly, most organizations don't. You're going to have to have much better systems for, uh, first of all, breach protection and you know security and threat protection, and then data breach identification, uh, detection, and data breach reporting, because those reporting requirements go up substantially, uh, and and just generally a complete rethinking and hardening of the security and threat protection layers, given how devastating the fines can be that might be levied if you have a major breach like Yahoo. So, in short, in other words, I haven't even begun to talk about all of the business process um, review and redesign that goes into being compliant. It is probably altogether even more time-consuming and complicated than the technical aspects of compliance. But you can see that 420 working days begins to look kind of laughably short once you begin to realize all of the things that have to be done by an organization or all of the things that may have to be done. And in, and in many, many cases, they will have to be done in every organization in order to uh, be compliant by may, may of 2018.
0: Yeah, agreed. That does seem like a very short amount of time.
1: Yeah. So the second excuse that I get is, um, and this one is also quite understandable, um, especially for in the U.S., um, maybe less so in Europe. Uh, and that is w- we'll wait and see if we get caught, all right? And basically we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. So if we get caught, then we'll pay the fine and we'll respond accordingly and so forth because typically the the situation um, in the U.S. in particular has been that fines have not been that excessive, that, that uh, invasive, and regulators uh, are... Satisfied with the promise that it's never going to happen again. Just think how many times Facebook has play, has faced that kind of, of criticism. And then you say, Oh, sorry, we didn't we didn't realize that toying with the psyche of our customers was a bad thing, and so we'll we promise never to do it again. This excuse is not valid because um I don't think we talked about this in the previous podcast, but it's worth repeating if we did. Um, it's very important to realize that this—it is not the case that the law comes into effect in May of 2018. It came into effect in May of 2016. It is now the law of the land, so to speak, in every EU member state. However, the regulation specifically spells out that there will be a two-year transition period in which it will not be enforced. Or more particularly, data protection authorities should not enforce it. Um, So this is the grace period. There's a two-year grace period between the time it it became law in 2016 and when it becomes enforceable or will be enforced in May of 2018. Uh, So what you cannot possibly say in May of 2018 is oh, sorry, but this is a brand new regulation and you have to give us some time to get used to it or get ready for it. This is the time built right into the regulation that companies are being given to get ready for it. And you ought to be taking advantage of that time. And interesting, actually, let me add something there. When you look at the fine structure, uh, the, the ways and you know what kinds of things will get you what level of fine in the regulation, there are pages actually of things that the data protection authority should take into account in determining the level of the fine. And one of them is whether you can demonstrate that you proactively tried to comply. So you could say, okay, we did violate the regulation, but look, we did all of these things. We tried to educate ourselves. We had conversations with the data protection authorities. We implemented some new processes and systems. So you can see that we were making a good faith effort uh, to comply with the law. And, and a reasonable data protection authority would, would realize that that could, that could moderate the amount of fine or cancel it altogether. But if you don't do anything until the law is close to coming into effect... Um, it will have the opposite impact on, on the authorities because you will have um, precisely not demonstrated any good faith attempt. You, you will have demonstrated that you were basically purposefully ignoring the need to be compliant with the regulation, and that would likely increase the level of the fine that you would receive. Interesting. So
0: so let me let me just try to clarify that. If you have taken if you've made some good faith effort to comply, then the regulator can use that as a decision point when they decide how much to fine you for a violation. Exactly. Does this mean, if you're caught in violation of GDPR, it doesn't sound like there, is, there are court proceedings at that point. It just sounds like the regulator decides what to do.
1: In most cases, the regulator uh, would decide what to do. So you, you, every organization needs to designate the member state data protection authority uh, and there may be more than one data protection authority in a in a country like Germany or something. But in any case, you designate the data protection authority that, uh, as it were, is going to be your watchdog, uh, so to speak. Although they want to think of themselves more like your partner, uh, your partner in privacy, um, and that. So that's like the that's the lead data protection authority uh, if it comes to a question of whether there's been a violation. A large organization that operates across Europe. Might have, might draw the attention of data protection authorities in many different countries, but there will and they, and they will then need to cooperate in determining uh, whether or, or not there has been a violation and whether uh, or not it, it requires a fine. But in principle, there is always a, a a designated lead authority.
0: Excellent. So, what's number three?
1: The third excuse is, <laughs> this one's kind of audacious. Yeah, we looked into it and we've got it covered. And you can see, given what we've reviewed uh, merely from the technical aspect, uh, the kind of infrastructure aspect of, of compliance, it's very, very unlikely that anybody uh, is uh, is fully compliant with the regulation today. Uh, as a matter of fact, this particular response, um, I first heard from a, a vendor, a software vendor. And vendors have a special... Ch- a. a Uh, an additional challenge, uh, and I must say uh, uh, as well, additional opportunities in the context of the GDPR, because it not, one, so let's say, I won't name a software vendor, but just imagine somebody who's selling WCM since we already mentioned that. They need to make sure that their business and their um, customer relations and the way in which they handle personal data is, you know, in their marketing efforts and so forth is, um, is compliant, just like any other client organization of theirs. Then they need to make sure, however, that their solutions are compliant, that they are selling. Um, They also need to make sure that their sales teams are educated about the GDPR because clearly as time goes on, any client or prospect is going to become increasingly anxious about knowing how a vendor's solution will or will not help them aid them in becoming compliant. So you need to be able to answer that question with some degree of knowledge. Um, And then the product strategy, how can we plot out, how can we um, create new solutions which are going to help people deal with the challenges of the GDPR? So there are about four or five different areas that a vendor has to um, very carefully think about and potentially design solutions around, as compared to the one area, really, basically, how are we handling personal data in our in, the, in our business processes that uh, that a so-called end user needs to worry about? So, if you hear from a, a vendor in September of 2016, a few months after the law has been past, and actually only not that many months after it came into its final form in the spring of this year, that they've looked into it and they've got it all covered, they're probably not understanding precisely the impact that it's going to have. Right,
0: right. And, and you know, there's there's only a handful of people that know this subject as well as you do at this point. I mean, is, is there some solution that you can buy off the shelf and just plug into your organization that's going to solve these problems for you? Not None whatsoever. I didn't think so.
1: It depends too much upon the distinctive situation of a given organization. Uh, So, you know, there will increasingly be both technology solutions and packaged advisories and packaged business processes that will help you deal with the GDPR. uh, And that's actually encouraged by the regulation but there certainly will never be any. You know, it's not a. It's not a plug-in that you just add to your current uh, business processes and then, uh, or your current business model, and then uh, you've dealt with it. So you know, that
0: it actually leads me to a follow-up question. I remember back in the early, in my early days as a web developer, I did a few government projects in the, in the United States, and um, they were uh, required to be compliant for. Um, for disabled people to use the websites. So there was, back in those days, it was sort of fashionable to actually put a seal at, in the, the footer of your website that indicated compliance. Um, do we do you use, sort of know of any organization that is even offering the testing and certification that's necessary to say, yes, this organization has done everything they need to do and they're compliant? Or does does that not even exist yet?
1: yes well i i can't say for sure whether um whether it exists yet but again um and this this is a this is one of the ways in which this is something that shows that the authors of the regulation were trying to be business friendly uh in their in, in light of their responsibility to protect the privacy and, and personal data uh, of eu residents so there's an entire section of the um of the regulation that is about um, certifications and um, seals and so forth, just, just as you were talking about it in the case of, uh, of compliance around um, accessibility. Uh, th- those seals have not been completed yet, um, and they'll probably vary by uh, industry and so forth, but that motivates companies within a given industry to come up with joint solutions that are uh, recognized as acceptable uh, under the GDPR, and to create some kind of, of certification program, and then a seal that you can achieve, as it were, and display um, at the uh, upon the completion of that program, and that will, you know, provide more trust and, and insight from the perspective of the uh, consumers who are visiting those sites or, or interacting with those companies, and make it easier for companies to um, have some assurance that the way in which they're behaving will be found um, appropriate should it come to any kind of review with a data protection authority.
0: So what else? What are the other reasons why people are not making any uh, any progress?
1: Yeah, the fourth one that I wanted to talk about is, uh, is actually the one that I hear most often, more than any other, uh, and this is, continues to astonish me, and as time goes on, it astonishes me more and more. Um, and you'll know why when I tell you, and that is um, basically what's the GDPR. Uh, I was just at a, at an event last week in uh, in Scandinavia, and there were about oh I don't know forty different organizations there, and I had as many conversations as I could. I probably started irritating people because all I wanted to do was say, you know, what's your organization doing about the GDPR, and I would say. Without exaggeration, eighty percent of the time, if not ninety percent of the time, they didn't have any idea what I was talking about. Uh, and these are, this is in Europe, right? <laughs> um, and this is—you know—what, eighteen, nineteen months away from from implementation or from from enforcement. I, I, in, a, in a way, I we, you know, I think this is, we talked about these as bad excuses for ignoring the, the GDPR. This is actually a good excuse for ignoring the GDPR because you're literally ignorant of it. I mean, I can hardly blame you if you haven't heard of it. I can't expect you to have made any progress towards complying with it. But it's only a good excuse for ignoring it as long as you're genuinely ignorant. Uh, and as soon as you become aware, like, right now, dear listener, um, then your obligation is to uh, to jump into uh, action uh, and begin as quickly as possible doing all of those things that we've uh, listed. And again, those were only a few of the things that you're going to need to do between now and, and May 25th, 2018.
0: Right, right. Th- this one's interesting to me. I've been to um, a few events recently where I've had the opportunity to communicate with CMOs at very well recognized global brands. And of course this is very unscientific. Um it was just this is just anecdotal but you know I I spoke actually at these events and so I had the opportunity to talk with you know 35 40 people at the same time and I asked each of the groups you know what what do you know about the GDPR and, and in each group a couple of people did know exactly what I was talking about. The overwhelming majority had no idea. And unfortunately, I can't. I wish I could say which company this is. I have a friend that I grew up with. that is the general counsel for a huge uh, organization that is publicly traded and uh, touches every part of the globe. And she uh, declined to to comment on the record because it, I think they see it partially as competitive advantage um, to discuss what they're doing about it. Um, but she knew exactly what I was talking about and she's taking it very seriously.
1: Yeah, that's, that's very interesting because it precisely is a competitive advantage. You know, that's, that's a good way of thinking about it. Um, for example, I was also at another big event in the US in this case uh, where there were a lot of service providers, so consulting firms and systems integrators and digital agencies. And again, there was one, one person really um, that didn't just say, oh, yeah, I've heard vaguely about that, but actually knew a lot about it. And, and that gives her organization a competitive advantage because, one, in this case, that they're a service provider, they've got a huge um, head start in providing the services um, that will help companies become compliant when those companies kind of wake up from their slumber and realize what they're facing. And if you look at it not from the perspective of a service provider but from, a, from those end-user companies, uh, if you're working on the GDPR now or if you've been working on it, if you were working on it six months ago before it even was passed as law but it was clear since uh, no later than December 2015 that it was going to be passed – that's when, you know, the real proactive firms should have begun working on it. And if you've been working on it now for three months or six months or nine months, uh, you've got a massive head start uh, and a massively easier uh, effort uh, in coming into compliance compared to your, to your competition.
0: So here we are. Um, any organization that, that stores or processes the information of EU residents has to most likely install four or five new bespoke systems that don't exist. Uh, that's technology. Uh, they have to change the way they operate. They have to retrain their, their team. Um, they have to certify that they're in compliance. They have roughly 19 months, I think we said, to do it. And, you know, uh, sort of anecdotally between you and I, it seems like probably a tenth of the businesses that we've spoken with actually know that this is this is coming seems like there's going to be a lot of folks caught with their uh their proverbial pants down in 2018. What do you I mean what's the solution to this problem?
1: Yes, and and so the the uh, that's that's precisely right and I agree with about 10% and so forth. And and that gets me to another excuse, which I didn't actually list as one of the four that we discussed, but we sometimes hear you know, I've got other things to do and it's not my top priority. Well, I can't judge that. I mean, that's that's for you know that's for for you as a business manager to decide. But what's going to happen in right. six months or a year when it absolutely has to be your top priority and overwhelms everything else that you ought to be doing in parallel? So it's much better to begin working on the GDPR now, if if not already yesterday, uh, so that you can. Keep, you know, as it were, several pots boiling at the same time rather than concentrating entirely, having to shift your intention entirely to the GDPR at some point in the future at the expense of the other important um, projects that you've got going.
0: I think now, you know, before we bring this conversation to a close, it might be a good time just to remind folks once again, what's at stake here?
1: Well, there's, there's a short answer. The short answer is um, what's that stick? What's the stick that the, that the EU uh, and the data protection authorities are going to use if you're not compliant? There are two levels of, or two categories of fines. So, for certain kinds of violations or, or non compliance, you can be fined up to uh, 10 million euros or 2% of your global annual turnover, that is, your global gross revenue. Uh, For the second category of violations, you can be fined up to 20 million euros or 4% of your total global revenue. So one of the ways to get people's attention is just look up their, you know, 2015 global gross revenue. (laughs) Um, And at this event that I was at last week, mostly it was um, developer and and technology focused, but there were two um, people, um, marketers from from large global organizations, and I I won't name them, um, but I calculated quickly that for one of them, uh, based in Europe, a 4% fine would be uh, 445 million euros. Uh, And for the other, actually also based in Europe, but very well, very, very well known in the US, uh, a 4% fine would be 2.1 billion euros. And that's for one violation. It, you could potentially be fined over and over again if you're a serial violator and refuse to learn your lesson. Uh, so that potentially, within, without exaggeration, potentially um, life-ending <laughs> circumstances for organizations that are that are grossly out of compliance with the uh, with the GDPR. What else is at stake? And I think this is a, a topic for an entire another podcast. Is that The intent here is that um, it institutes an entire new paradigm for the expectations of consumers and the behavior of companies around privacy and personal data. So, going back to our discussion of competitive advantage and disadvantage, setting aside the fines entirely, if a number not even necessarily the majority but if a number of firms in your competitive set are compliant they are going to be much much more attractive for consumers to do business with because they're they are going to appear to be they are going to be not just appear to be much more trustworthy and responsible right and and have surrendered entirely what is to what is today largely an antagonistic relationship with consumers around personal data. Like companies are trying to figure out how to get more of it, and uh, and consumers are trying to figure out ways to keep them from doing it. When that kind of war ends, and it and it turns into a trust based relationship with a mutual exchange of value on the part of the company and the consumer, and both of them are getting benefits out of, of the consumer's personal data, then you're going to be at a great disadvantage if you're operating in the old-fashioned way uh, as an antagonist. Gotcha.
0: Well, I think then that's probably a good place for us to, uh, to end this conversation. And uh, we'll talk to you again, Tim, at, at a later date and learn more about the
1: GDPR. Great. My pleasure. Thanks, Jake.
0: You have been listening to another episode of Just Clarity, produced by the team at Digital Clarity Group. For more information on the topics we discussed today or the subject of customer experience management, please visit us at digitalclaritygroup.com.